Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This chapter is the greatest literary masterpiece ever penned. Even so, we must not divorce these lofty and beautiful words from their context. Paul is dealing with problems in the Corinthian church. He has written to them about their division, envy, flagrant immorality, the abuse of tongues, and other unholy behavior. God had commissioned the Corinthian church as a rescue vessel in the pagan society in which they were planted. But the Corinthians had taken on the water of the society in which they lived. And so Paul is attempting to recommission them. In chapter 12, he sets forth how the church can be effective as individual members find and exercise their spiritual gifts through exercising through the Holy Spirit these gifts. The body would become a healthy, dynamic force in the world and truly be a rescue ship in the midst of those dark and destructive waters of paganism. The thrust of chapter 13 is that spiritual gifts must be ministered in love. This chapter cautions the Corinthians and you and me against being so zealous for spiritual gifts, but neglecting spiritual graces. Not only must we seek the rich endowment of God's gifts, but these must be exercised in love. Even though this passage must be interpreted in its context, I do not want us to miss a personal and family application. I was saved as a teenager, and after being called to preach, I went to Mars Hill College. My enrollment in that school put me in close touch with the Perry Crouch family in Asheville, where Dr. Crouch was pastor of the First Baptist Church. He had been my pastor as a small child. His oldest son, Henry, and I had been close friends throughout the years. As I frequently visited the Crouch home in Asheville and experienced love in action, 
as I witness their display of affection, their kind words, their caring about one another. I realized that my life was a veritable Grand Canyon. I was reared in a home where work was the word. But there was a vacuum. Little expression of love. In fact, it was a home of conflict and anger. And as I witnessed the love in the Crouch home, as I saw those teenage boys kiss their daddy, as I experienced the warmth of conversation about the dinner table, I said as a preacher, boy, oh God, you need to build some bridges across the canyon of my life. And I believe that God began working in my life as a preacher boy. But I confess to you that many times it seems that all that he did has been destroyed. But God never has given up. God has continued to work in my life. And there's a long ways to go. But I thank God that some bridges have been built in my life. How is the bridge building going in your life? Do some of you today need a heartwarming? As we look at this passage, it's not my purpose to give you a neat outline or technically to analyze it, but to simply let God's word speak to our hearts. What we need is not more facts, but a warming of the heart. This passage is so beautiful and sacred that A.T. Robertson said, It is a pity to dissect this gem or to pull to pieces the fragrance of this rose petal by petal. Paul's language here calls for little comment because it is the language of the heart. As you look at the language of the heart, we see a picture of Jesus Christ. Here is the love that we find in our wonderful Lord. But as you look at this picture of Jesus, love in action. Many of us are aware of our inadequacy and need. The love of which he writes here is agape love, which speaks of God's love, that uh, self-giving love, that love that does not expect anything in return, that love that we're to have one for another, the kind of love that God has for us. 
Agape love is not found in the best of human personalities or our own natures. This love is rooted in divine nature. And as Jesus Christ who lives within us releases his life, so as Paul said, love is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Let's look at this picture, this language of love, and let it speak now to our hearts. In the first three verses, Paul begins his discussion by sharing with us how important the preeminence of love he mentions here several spiritual gifts. But three times in each of the verses, we find the statement, but do not have love. But do not have love. But do not have love. It profits me nothing. He declares that no matter how effective we might be in exercising some spiritual gift, but if we do not have love, we're nothing. Love, therefore, takes precedence over every other gift in members of the body of Christ. If I speak with tongues of men, even though I have the ability to be a silver-tongued orator, and with tremendous moving rhetoric, speak to people. Or if I could communicate like angels. But if I do not have love, it is just empty words. It is empty noise. And if I have the gift of prophecy, the ability to tell forth the truth of God, or to predict the future, what is, what is it going to profit if I have not love? And if I know all mysteries, being able to grasp mysterious secrets of God, that's not as important as love. And if I have all knowledge, if I gain facts and fill my brain with information, that's not the highest goal. And if I have all faith, and he uses the expression all faith, to describe the extent or the success of faith. If I had the faith that I could stand at Newfound Gap and say to the Smoky Mountains, be level. That is nothing in comparison with the exercise and display of agape love. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, 
If I should work myself to the point that I could gather 500 baskets of food to be given out at Thanksgiving to needy families. But if I don't have love, that's nothing in the sight of God. And he mentions then the supreme sacrifice of giving one's life. If I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And so all of these great accomplishments are deficient without love. In fact, without love, they are pretense. They are distorted and often negated with one's self-glory. In verses 4 through 7, Paul now describes the properties, the qualities of love. Look at these. Verse 4, love is patient, or love suffers long. It's patient with and accepts other people. Love is kind. Kindness must also characterize the child of God. A Scottish minister once said, Remember, if you're not very kind, you're not very holy. Because holiness and kindness cannot be separated. And the use of the word kind here speaks not just of an attitude, but literally being usefully kind. Love envieth not. Love is not jealous. Love is not boastful or proud. Weymouth renders this, love does not parade her gifts, does not with self-conceit display them. Love is never arrogant toward inferior. It doesn't have an inflated sense of importance. Verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. It is courteous. It has good manners. It shows respect. Love seeketh not her own. It does not seek its selfish purposes with things and with people. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not delight in evil reports. It does not keep a record of wrongs that have been done. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not gloat over wickedness. It's never glad when things go wrong for people. Love will not permit one to stand in a little group and criticize and laugh at the failures and mistakes of other people. Love is not catty and cutting toward the weaknesses of other people. Love rejoices with the truth. It's happy when truth prevails, when goodness wins out in a situation. Verse 7. 
Love bears all things. And the Greek word that is rendered bears is used elsewhere to express covering up. And so he's saying, love covers up. Love forgives. Love covers up the mistakes. It puts up with all kinds of situations. It's always gracious to the failures of others. Love believes all things. There's no end to its trust. Love hopes all things. Love never gives up. It's confident that there will be an ultimate victory. Love, you see, is full of optimism concerning a situation and an individual. Love endures all things. This kind of agape love gives one the ability to remain under the load and not to quit. Now human love oftentimes will express kindness and ministry and endure for a while. But it's only this kind of love that will cause one never to quit, to stand true, to keep on keeping on. So here are qualities, expressions of what this divine love that is implanted in our lives by the Holy Spirit. But lest you and I miss the application, could I ask you right now, if you have your Bible open, just keep it there on your lap. If you're taking notes, just uh, hold on to what you have. And if you will right now, I want you to close your eyes. Every person here, will you just close your eyes? And I want to read these verses again from another translation. And would you, as you listen to these words, play back the tape recorder of this past week. Situations at work, how you got along at home, the conditions there where you were yesterday. Allow the tape recorder now to play and listen. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is not neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not compile statistics of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. Now is the tape recorder going? 
Have you thought about things you said, how you reacted, the attitude that you had, situations where you did not manifest this kind of love? Oh, may God help us all to make application in our daily interpersonal relationships of this love. All right, look this way, if you will, as we conclude the last division of this tremendous hymn of love. The third stanza is about the permanence, the victory, how love is going to outlast everything else. And he begins in verse 8 by saying, love never fails. Everything else in life will decay and will ultimately fail. But not love. He says even these gifts of prophecy, the gifts of tongues, the gifts of knowledge, these things will come to an end. They're going to cease. They're going to be done away. but not love. And to illustrate the need of our maturity, experiencing more of this divine agape love in our lives, he says, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Then there are two illustrations to drive home this truth of maturing in the Christ life and experiencing a greater measure of this agape love. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. This being true in the normal development of life must be true in the spiritual life. When we start out the walk with Christ, we are but children. But as we continue to experience more of his life, as self is crucified, as Jesus is in control, as he pours his resurrected life into your life and mine than it is. As we become spiritual men, we put away childish things. And he uses the illustration of a mirror. That's difficult for us to understand because mirrors today give perfect pictures. When you looked in the mirror this morning, you saw yourself as you are. But these mirrors were made of polished brass. And even the best of those mirrors gave an imperfect picture of the image. And so he's saying, now we see in a mirror, this polished brass kind of mirror, dimly. There's distortions. 
But then one of these days, this is going to be removed. And we're going to see Jesus Christ face to face. And I'm going to know Him just as fully as I am known. Yes, all of us are in a state of transition. There are limitations. There are selfish pursuits. There are in our lives much of the carnal old man of sin. But we're moving on as mature believers, looking forward to that time about which the choir was singing. When we're going to be changed. And then we'll know the complete transformation. Of the work that Christ has begun in our lives. Through Jesus Christ. But now abide faith. Hope. And love. One of these days. Faith will be sight. And hope will be fulfilled. But they will remain forever as does love. But greater than faith and hope is love. The greatest of these is love. Look back over this hymn of love. And let's make some further applications. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about the preeminence or the importance of love. He says that no spiritual gift is as important as love. What is the most important thing in your life? What is your goal? What drives you on? Success? Money? Things? Family? Working for the Lord? This stanza reminds us that there is nothing more important in our lives than showing and experiencing love. Will you make that the goal of your life this week? In verses 4 through 7, Paul talked about the performance of love, the qualities, how love manifests itself in relationships with people. May I ask you this morning, do you manifest love? How do you express love to those in your family? To those that you work or go to school with? How do you express love here in this church? Does love come through? I'm not talking about just the habit of church. But does love come through? Do people see in your life more than anything else? That you care. That you love. So Paul is saying. 
We must express love, not only say that's the important thing of our life, but learn to express it in interpersonal, in interpersonal relationships. And then in that last paragraph, he says that love is permanent and consistent. Do you and I consistently express love? Or does it fade in and out? Some days do we express love and other days hate. Some days is there patience, but other days great impatience. Some days are we hot in our emotions, but then cold another. Just as love, agape love, is permanent and consistent, so we are challenged that this kind of love must be permanently expressed in our lives. Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this all men shall know that you are my disciples. We were singing a moment ago, they, the, the world about us, will know that we are Christians because we come to Sunday school and church, because we give our money, because we go out and visit on Wednesday night, because we are here worshiping and singing. Jesus said, the song says, they will know that we are Christians by our, say it, love. It's love above every other spiritual gift. It's love that becomes the circulatory system of the members of the body of Christ. It's love in which we must exercise our spiritual gifts. And it's love that fulfills all that we see in Jesus Christ. This morning, do you need to confess to God the coldness of heart, that there is a, an emotional vacuum in your life and in your marriage? Do some of you today need to say, Oh God, there is a grand canyon in my heart. I need you to build a bridge across it. Do you need bridges built towards someone else? Do you today need to experience the work of God in your life? Let's pray together. And now for just a moment of quietness, would you allow... God's Spirit to make application of the Scripture. Would you allow the Holy Spirit just to speak to you? What changes need to be made in your attitude? What changes need to come 
in your family. What changes need to be made in your life as a professing Christian? Are you cold in heart? Are you insensitive to God's Spirit? In the 930 service, a little nine-year-old boy that I baptized a few Sundays ago came down here by himself and got on his knees and prayed. And I couldn't help but say, Oh God, help me and these other adults to be childlike. Not childish, but childlike. Responsive. Humble. Trusting. How many of you today need to allow God to make you childlike? You need Him to take away the childishness, but make you childlike. Right there in your seat, some of you need to talk to God about some things in your life that need to change, about some bridges that need to be built. How many of you today would move out of your seat and get on your knees here, as several did in the earlier service, and just talk to God about the coldness of your heart the relationships that you have, how many of you would ask God to build a bridge in your life this morning? How many of you are here, you know Christ is Savior, but you're not plugged into a local church? This passage about being a member of the body of Christ contradicts this individual Christianity that tends toward isolation and independence from the local church. If you're in Christ, you're a member of the body of Christ, you need to be a functioning member. How many of you, in response to the love of this church, would respond this morning and come forward and say, I want to be a part of this body, this family. I want God to use me. How many of you would respond this morning to God's love as He gave Jesus for your sins? The Lord Jesus died that you might have life. Will you this morning accept Him as your Savior? Will you this morning allow Him to come into your life and change you? You may not understand all about it, but if there is an inner conviction and a need, you come forward, we'd like to talk with you and show you how that you can find Jesus as your Savior. The Savior is waiting. Would you receive Him? Would you follow Him? The choir is going to sing. I'm going to ask that you remain seated with your heads bowed. And one after another, would you not get up and come and kneel here in prayer and ask God to build some bridges in your life? How many of you this morning would come and say, in response to God's love and the love of this church, we want to be a member of the family of God here at First Baptist? How many of you today would come and say, I want Christ as my Savior? Whatever the need. Won't you step out? Not because I ask you, but because God's Spirit has put an inner compulsion 
And you can't sit there any longer. You've got to get up and come. Would you come in response to what God says as the choir sings?